for these children, what a blessing they are. And I pray that you would, uh, as they go to Children's Church, that you would use that time to uh, just teach them about the gospel and to nurture them. And I pray uh, that you would just use it to to have them uh, know more about your son. And if they don't know you already, I pray that you would use this time to draw them uh, to yourself. Let them see their beautiful Savior and see how he is, that they are his. I pray all these things in the matchless name of that Savior, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. I get... uh, I have the privilege of preaching this morning, and... um, I have to say that I have no problems with the passage that I've been assigned, Pastor Silver, now, just for the record. It's a great passage. In fact, you can turn there now if you'd like to, just to get a head start. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 5 through 11 today. So if you want to turn, with there, uh, turn there with me, that'd be great. Now, a lot of you have heard... Um, the story about how Christine and I met in seminary. But I don't think any of you have heard uh, the story that's part of that one of the Tom Rubino image restoration process, which also took place during that time. You see, even before we were officially dating, I noticed there were changes taking place. Suddenly I was growing my hair out, and then I was growing a goatee, and And then the focus seemed to kind of hone in more on my wardrobe. The hints were subtle at first. A new corduroy sports jacket. A couple of new shirts. In fact, this happens to be one of those shirts right here that suddenly appeared into my wardrobe, uh, my new wardrobe right there, okay? And inevitably, the day arrived. That day of the purging of the boyfriend's clothes closet. I knew it was coming, and I remember that day when she came over, and as we were going through my clothes in the closet, if you were a fly in the wall, these are some of the things that you might have heard said that afternoon as we uh, went through my wardrobe. I don't think that's working for you. (laughs) Um, that, That really needs to go. Why are you still wearing this? And this is my personal favorite. Well, you might wear those if you were mowing the lawn or something. (laughs) Right? I mean, what was going on here? Well, the fact was, is by nature of my new relationship with Christine, I had a new identity. Gone was the dorky, drab, single seminary student. I was now dating the popular, the fashionable, the hip Christine Dow, And I had to stop dressing like the old Tom and start wearing the new clothes of the new Tom. I mean, the old clothes just didn't fit me anymore. They weren't me, and I, they just had to be tossed out. It was time for them to go. You know, and and we're chuckling, but this uh, story is a perfect setup for the passage that we're looking at today in Colossians. Because... What Paul is essentially saying to the Colossians and to us is this, by nature of your new relationship with Jesus Christ, your union with him, you have a new identity now. You are a new 
person. Purge your wardrobe of all those clothes of the old person. They aren't you anymore. They don't fit. Get rid of them. So let's turn to that passage. If you'll turn with me to Colossians 3, and we'll read verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The first thing I'd like to talk about today is resting in the indicatives. Now we talked a little, actually we talked a lot about these last week, the indicatives and the imperatives. The imperatives are are the biblical commands, are what we're called to do. And the indicatives, when we talk about those, those refer to what is true about us. And we talked about how what is true about us ultimately flows from our union with Christ, that supernatural that mystical bond between Christ and believers. All our spiritual blessings flow from that union with Christ. So the brass takeaway from that is, is our efforts to obey God's commands must flow from what is true about us. It's not what we do that determines who we are or what is true about us. It's what is true about us that serves as the only foundation for our obedience to God's commands. If we don't remember these distinctions, then we're going to get ourselves in, in a heap of trouble. And you know, throughout all his letters, Paul is always, he's giving commands and imperatives, but he's always rooting them in what is true about us. And this passage is no different. Now, how do we know this? Well, because of the therefore. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And of course, as we, you know, we talked about a couple weeks ago, when we see therefore, a question to ask is, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Well, it's like Paul is saying, listen, I'm, I'm giving you a command here. But remember that the foundation for obeying that command is built on what I said before. So then the question is, well, what, what did Paul say before? What is, he, what is the therefore pointing backwards to? Well, the foundation for obedience to Paul's command is what he's already said is true about the Colossians, about Christians, about us, and specifically in the passage we looked at last week, but more generally in everything he has said in the entire letter so far that is true about us. So let's take a a, a quick look at some of the things that Paul has said so far in Colossians. For example, in chapter 1, he says these things. These things are already true about you if you are in Christ. You already have faith in Christ. You're qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. You have already been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You have redemption and forgiveness of sins in Christ. 
you are no longer alienated, hostile to God, doing evil deeds, but now you have been reconciled by the death of Christ. And you will be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach because of a union of Christ, by Christ, before God. All those things from chapter 1 are true about Christians right now. And then in chapter 2, he says these things. You're filled in Christ. You've put off the body of flesh through the circumcision of Christ. You've been buried with Christ in his baptism and raised with him in his resurrection. You were dead in your trespasses, but you have been made alive in Christ. Your trespasses have been forgiven. The record of debt and legal demands have been canceled, set aside, nailed to the cross. That is what is true about you. And then last week, we talked about these things. And, and this passage from last week oozes union with Christ. Okay? It says, we've been raised with Christ. We have died. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life. And because we have union with him, we will appear with Christ in glory. All those things are, serve as a foundation for the command that Paul is about to give here on our passage. Now cling to what I'm about to say here, okay? Because Paul is not saying put to death what is earthly in you. He's not saying kill your sin so that all those things can be true about you. He is saying these things are already true about you because of your union with Christ. So put them to death. Put them away. And that is a huge difference. I mean, why am I making such a big deal about this? Well, because what you bring to the table this morning is going to determine how you respond to this passage that we're reading. If you don't understand you and the Christ or, or the relationship between the indicatives and the imperatives and things like that, you're going to read this passage and you might think, oh, so I've got to clean up my act before I come to Jesus, right? Or you might, you know, read it and, and just say, okay, I'm going to huff and puff trying to put my sins away but you're going to have the wrong motivation because you're trying to, hoping to impress God. You're looking to earn his approval or his acceptance or his love. Or you'll read this passage and you'll attack the imperatives of his, as if you know, fulfilling them is all dependent upon you and you will crash and burn in your own strength and you will get discouraged and depressed. Or you might read this passage with the wrong foundation and you might find yourself even questioning your salvation. I mean, Paul's saying right here, you know, for Christians, we, these, we need, these things need to be put to death. We need to kill, kill our sin. And not only am I struggling big time to put them to death, but every time I make some progress, two more kind of pop up for me to handle. So you might think, you know what? That must mean I'm not really a Christian. Beloved, my brothers and sisters, none of these things are what Paul is saying, and none of these things are the gospel. It's time for us to talk about pursuing those imperatives, but before we do, let's all check our foundation. Are you resting in the indicatives this morning? Does what is true about you fuel your obedience to God's commands, or is your obedience determining what you see as being true about you? Check your foundation. So now we're talking about pursuing the imperatives. There's no question 
that Paul issues a command here. He says, put to death whatever is earthly in you. Or another way of, of saying it is, you know, kill the sin that remains in you. You know, and the Greek here sheds some light on the force behind what Paul is saying. Because it's kind of like he's saying it this way. Kill it! Take no prisoners. Have no mercy. Kill it! That's the force behind it. This is not a suggestion. This is not Paul offering constructive criticism. This is a command. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And with the same seriousness, Paul says here, kill it! Following biblical commands are not optional for us. There are no exceptions. This command isn't for the super spiritual. It's not just for your pastors or your elders or your deacons. It's for every single one of us because we all are to kill the remaining sin in our lives. So with that encouragement, let's look at this list that Paul gives us. The first thing he mentions is sexual immorality, which basically is any sexual relationship outside biblical marriage. Now, I know that there's a youth retreat today, but I also know there are some young people here, whether that's junior high or high school or college or, or outside of college who are single. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, this is my little personal message to you this morning. Do not believe the empty and evil lies that you are bombarded with every day in this culture. Okay? Any sexual relationship outside of marriage is a sin. So kill it. The next thing he mentions is impurity, moral uncleanness, or filth, and it's of a sexual nature in this context. This goes beyond sexual immorality, which is the physical, and kind of delves into the thoughts and intentions of the mind and hearts. Are you getting nervous? Because I am. I mean, do you don't know if you struggle with this kind of impurity? Let me ask you a couple questions. How long is your glance when you're watching the football game and the camera pans out to the cheerleaders on the sidelines? Or you're watching your favorite TV show and one of the hunks on the show rips off his shirt? Are the novels you're reading stirring godly things in you? Where do your eyes instinctively go when a member of the opposite sex walks in the room? And let me gently and pastorally ask you this. How close emotionally are you really to that coworker who is not your husband or your wife? Kill it. He mentions passion and evil desire, which are probably referring to the physical and mental aspects of lust. And then he says coveting, which is idolatry, that insatiable desire to have more or to have what is forbidden. And this desire can be for good things or bad things, power, money, someone's spouse, job, prestige, status, but it being rooted in the belief that contentment has to be found outside of God. It's idolatry because it elevates something above God. Kill it. And then Paul says, put away these other sins. And put away is the same 
Greek word that is used for taking clothes on and off. It's like he's saying, discard your filthy, tattered rags of your old life. Throw them away. Put away your anger, your deep-seated, smoldering resentfulness or bitterness, and your wrath, which is really the southern outburst of that anger. Put away your malice, your intent of doing harm to others, your slander, your insults or disparaging remarks made towards others. That's perfect for this election season, isn't it? Your obscene talk, your abusive speech intended to hurt or wound somebody. Don't know if you struggle with any of these speech sins? How do you talk about people when they're not there? How do you talk to your spouse or your children behind closed doors? Put it away. Put away your lying which can include purposely withholding the truth, by the way. And here's some food for thought about lying. Satan is called the father of lies. So when you lie, who are you imitating? It's not your earthly, not your heavenly father you're imitating. Put them all away. Verse 11, Paul also indirectly addresses barriers like discrimination and prejudice, snobbery. Now, we don't have time to examine all the different groups that he contrasts and mentions here, but know that Paul's point here is that the church is no place for barriers or divisions, whether it's racial, religious, social, cultural, it doesn't matter. You know, don't know if you struggle with barriers? Let me ask you this. How do you really feel about the Yankee fans in this congregation? (laughs) I'm just trying to break the tension up a little bit there. But I'm going to ask you something a little more serious. You know, how, how do you view your brothers and sisters that are Democrats? Republicans? What's your attitude towards your brothers and sisters in the Lord who have more wealth than you? Or less? And let me ask you this. If you were really honest, I mean really honest, how would you really feel if our church were a little less white and a little less middle to upper Loudoun class, upper Loudoun County? Well, these are all the sins that Paul chose to mention to the Colossians. And you know as well as I do that this list could go on and on and on, right? I mean, there are lots of sins that we could talk about this morning. But let's just stop right here and take a deep breath. Because I don't know about you, but Paul's just about stepped on enough of my toes for one morning, right? Because I'm pretty convicted. And we have to remember something. That that is not Paul's goal in the sense of Paul is not trying to beat us up or beat us down by throwing our sins in our faces. What he is simply trying to say is that you are a new person. And these sins that he's mentioning, they're the old clothes of the old man. And you know what? Those clothes, they're just not you anymore. They don't fit. And what do you do with clothes that don't fit anymore? You take them off and you throw them away. Because you are a new person. And that's my point. 
not how much weight I've lost. That's my point. You are a new person, and you put on new clothes, and you get rid of the old ones. That's Paul's point. See, Paul's saying, you know, why do you kill these sins? Why do you put them away? Well, because these sins are what you used to walk in, he says in verse 7. But you don't walk in them anymore, verse 8. Because you are a different person. Because the old self has been put off and the new self has been put on, he says in verse 10. And that new self, it's being renewed in the image of your creator, in the image of God every day. Why do we tear down those barriers? Because Christ has already torn them down and he has united us and made us all equal by virtue of our, nature, virtue of our union with him. You know, Paul's forcefulness in giving these commands is not flowing from judgment or condemnation. It's flowing for his desire for us to live lives that please the Lord and that are more like him. It's, it's rooted in his concern that we don't turn back to those sins that enslaved us for the old self. It's fueled by his passion to see us become more of who we already are. Okay. But now let's talk about the obvious question here. How? How do we do this? How do I kill my sin? How do I put my sins away? And we could probably spend 50 sermons talking about that. But we're going to touch on a couple of things here. So let's talk about embracing the impossible. Now, I, I refer to killing our sin as embracing the impossible for a couple of reasons. The first is because killing your sin in your own effort is impossible. It's not going to happen if you try and do it in your own strength. And second, because even for those of us who recognize that we have to depend on the Holy Spirit in order to kill our sin, many times it still seems like that task is impossible, right? See, we're hitting another spot of biblical tension here. Because on the one hand, we're called to fight with everything we've got to pursue holiness, right? On the other hand, it is clear that that growing holiness, that sanctification, is ultimately rooted and dependent on the gracious and sovereign working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I mean, we see this tension even in our passage today. On the one hand, we're told to kill our sin. We're told to put, the, put it away. And on the other hand, we're told that we are being renewed in the image of the Creator. We are being renewed. We're not the ones doing the renewing. The Holy Spirit is the one that is renewing us and has to renew us. So what's my part and what's God's part? Well, I'm not sure that we have to hammer out all the details about that. In fact, I'm not even sure we can hammer out all the details about that. I think it's best for us to just live in the glorious tension that we are called to fight and yet at the same time we are ultimately dependent upon God. God who both started the good work in us and will bring it about to completion. So I think that's the more important question here is do you realize how utterly dependent you are upon God to kill your sin? Because here's the reality. 
even as believers, even as new creations, we struggle to even want to kill our sin a lot of times. We struggle to even want to see our sin. We struggle to even see it, never mind want to see it. I mean, killing sin involves plumbing the depths of our hearts, our sinful hearts, and that takes us to places we do not want to go. But even if our desire were there consistently, like I said, if that desire to kill sin were there consistently, we can't kill it in our own strength. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to dwell on us and to do it. And furthermore, I mean, the other reality is, is if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, we would just all give up. Because pursuing holiness... Growing in sanctification is not for the faint of heart, is it? It involves pain. It involves suffering and denial and crucifying. It involves blood, sweat, tears. And sometimes the progress is so slow. You just want to throw up your hands and be like, what's the point? Why even try, right? All of these things point to the why it is that the Holy Spirit must do this thing in us. We are utterly dependent on him. We are lost and hopeless without his sovereign, gracious working in our hearts. And that sovereign, gracious working is the true foundation for any of our efforts to kill our sin. And we have to remember that. Now that being said, there are some practical things to consider. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but Let's just dive into it, okay? You want to kill your sin? Okay, here's the first thing. Fight! Fight! I mean, some of us just need to hear that simple exhortation. Sin is not conquered through laziness. It's not conquered through half-heartedness. You know, and dependence upon the Holy Spirit doesn't give you the right to just sit back and wait for your sanctification to happen. That is not biblical. You know, part of God's sovereign working in your life is using your wrestling and your struggling with your sin. So fight. Here's something else. You want to kill your sin? Stop flirting with danger. Okay? Let's just get real here. Does a certain news website have racy pictures on it or articles that you don't need to be reading? Get your news from a different website. Can't stop at one drink or two drinks? Don't have it in your house. Why risk connecting with that old boyfriend or girlfriend on Facebook? You haven't talked to him or her in 20 years anyway. Why do you need to start it up now? Stop playing with fire. You poke the dog enough times, you're going to get bit. It's just a fact. You know, also, make sure you recognize the real issue. Sometimes... What we see as the main problem is really just a symptom. I mean, this can happen with addictions a lot of times. Someone who's addicted to pornography will usually see it as mainly a lust issue. Or someone who has a food addiction will see it mainly as a gluttony or a self-discipline issue. And there's a lot of truth to that. Those issues are involved, and those issues are sin that has to be addressed. But while they're true, they're probably just really the symptoms of the real issue. Because the main issue is idolatry. And until you address, in regards to your sin, why you keep bowing down to that idol, what role it's playing in your life, what's being medicated by worshiping it, progress in killing it is going to stall. Or, 
Your success in defeating it will be deceptively successful. Why? Because if you don't kill it, all you're going to do is just exchange one idol for another. For example, spiritually speaking, is it really any better to bow down to the idol of exercise than it is to bow down to the idol of food? I mean, spiritually, it's the same thing. If you don't kill it, if you don't see what's really underneath it, you'll just exchange one for the other. Another thing, you want to kill sin, come out of hiding. I have said many times, why won't God take this sin from me, right? As if the issue is with him and not with me. I mean, the truth is, I may say that I want to kill a particular sin, and I, and I do repent when I commit that sin, but deep down, if I'm really honest, I really don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to let it go. I mean, sometimes killing sin just begins with that acknowledgement that you really don't want to give it up and praying to God that he will change that desire. Come out of hiding. You know, feed your new self. It's not enough to starve your sin, to starve the old self. You have to feed the new self and encourage your own growth in righteousness, right? I mean, you want God's grace to to work in your life, to make use of the means of grace that he's given to the church. Pray. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to show you your sin. Ask God to give you the strength to fight and make a stand. Study and meditate on the scripture. Look for it to shape and change your heart. Come on a Sunday morning and hear the word preached. Be here and participate in the Lord's Supper. All these things give you the grace that you need need to fight and to kill your sin. You need all these things. Another one is fear God. You know, 1 Peter tells us, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Again, this is a whole sermon in and of itself. But Paul also reminds us in verse 6 that sin provokes the wrath of God. Now, here's, here's my point, okay? We no longer fear God's condemnation because we are in Christ, okay? That is true of us. But we should reverently and with awe fear the God of the universe. And we should fear his discipline. And as his beloved children, we should fear displeasing him. I'm just going to ask a question to get you to think about this. If people in the Bible quake with fear when angels visit them, how much more should we quake with fear when we ponder being in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God? Let that godly, biblical, reverential fear provoke you to kill your sin. Don't fight alone. Sin left in darkness retains its power over you. Bring it into the light. Tell somebody you're struggling and find others who will help you be accountable and support you is another thing. And don't get discouraged. Okay? When it comes to killing sin, we all need to embrace this reality. We will be struggling with sin for the rest of our earthly lives. Don't believe me? Read Romans 7. 
And you'll hear Paul lay it all out. The Apostle Paul, the Christian. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I shouldn't do, I do. He is wrestling with that reality. And we will wrestle with sin until the already is finally realized in us. But at the same time, we need to cling to the reality of Paul's words later on in Romans 8. He says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, if God has predestined something, it is going to happen. Your sanctification is a done deal. You will be conformed to the image of his Son. And then he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. How can we be glorified in the past tense? Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because in the already, even though we live in the not yet, in the already, we are glorified. Your glorification is a done deal. So when you fall face first on the floor in your struggle with sin, you keep fighting. And you just cling to the certainty of those two things that we just talked about. Now, I'm going to conclude with the most important how of the how to kill your sin and put them away. And that is, let your heart be stirred by love and gratitude. Have you ever uh, seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption? Now, if you haven't, okay, do not consider this to be a recommendation of that movie, okay? Because this movie is for adults only, and even, and it's not for all adults. It's gritty, and it's rated R for a reason. So you need to do your homework before you go and, and see it or uh, rent it or watch it on TV, if you can even rent movies anymore. That being said... The Shawshank Redemption offers a wonderful illustration of why your heart should be stirred with love and gratitude. See, it's a movie about an accountant named Andy Dufresne. And Andy is wrongfully imprisoned for the murder of his wife. And Andy has a tough time in prison until the guards find out about Andy's skill in accounting and they start making use of it. And then, soon after that, the warden gets word of it. And next thing you know, Andy is kind of his personal assistant, right? Handling everything from the warden's dry cleaning to polishing his shoes to setting up accounts and banks under false names to help the warden embezzle funds. That's how he used his accounting skills. Well, then one day, Andy is gone. After years of this going on, Andy's gone. And the guards and the warden discover that Andy has escaped through a hole that he dug in the wall of his prison cell. And they learn what we've known the whole time, right? Because we know, watching the movie, that for decades, Andy has been slowly, painstakingly chipping away at his cell wall to make this hole. And then he goes in every morning in the prison yard and kind of gets rid of the rubble by very kind of, you know, casually shaking it from his pants legs, right? We know that. And we also know how Andy manages to escape because he waits for that perfect stormy night with deafening thunder, right? 
and he crawls through the hole that he's made in his cell wall, and he uses a rock to smash a hole in that huge pipe, which happens to be the pipe that all the raw sewage from the prison goes out of. And he smashes a hole in it, and then he proceeds to wade through football field after football field of raw sewage until he finally gets to the place where he can kick out a vent and fall into the stream outside the prison. And then there's that awesome scene, right, when he finally gets out and his hands are lifted up in the air and the lightning flashes and you see Andy's face. And it's just beaming with joy and triumph. Why? Because he is free. He is finally free. And the next we see of Andy is the following morning where he's visiting banks and withdrawing all the embezzled funds that he helped to put there. (laughs) And what set of new clothes is Andy wearing? The very suit and dress shoes of the warden himself, which he smuggled out with him. Beloved, can you see that Jesus Christ has done the same thing for you? When you were stuck in your prison cell for crimes that you were guilty of, Jesus busted you out. He blasted a hole in the prison cell wall He allowed himself to be stained by the sewage of your sin as he carried you through it. Buying your freedom through his death on the cross and then dressing you up, not in the warden's clothes, but in his glorious and brilliant white robes of righteousness. Beloved, in, in light of these things, in light of God's great love and grace and mercy that is found in Jesus Christ, in light of us finally being free, why? Why would we turn back around again, wade back through the sewage, and go back and be a captive in our old prison cell? Why would we do that? Let your hearts be stirred by love and gratitude for what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and kill your sin instead of bowing to it. But know this, as you struggle and you wrestle with your sin and you find that you've turned yourself back around and you've started wading through the sewage back to your prison cell, you know this, that Jesus will always be there waiting for you and he will always forgive you and he will always cover you with his righteousness. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Please pray with me. Father, this has been a a difficult morning. Um, It's always hard for us to be confronted with our sinfulness. But let us not forget the glorious truths that are true about us in Christ and let that be the fuel for us to address that sinfulness. I pray for all of us, myself included, that what we've looked at and and heard today would sink deep into our hearts 
and that we would embrace the new person that you have made us to be. And then we will toss out our old clothes and be more of who we already are by your grace and your Holy Spirit. I thank you that we can even have this discussion and rest in that, in our union with Christ. What a gift. Thank you so much for the blood of your son, for his death and his resurrection, without which we would all be horribly lost. Thank you. I pray all these things in the name of the one who did shed his blood and have his body broken for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. God is good. Let's stand for the uh, benediction before we head out to our fellowship lunch. This is a responsive blessing. Go forth with great joy to proclaim the good news of the gospel. We go in the name of the Father.